0: Good morning. hope you're doing well. We are uh, still in our doctrine series and the doctrine that we're doing today is the doctrine of the atonement. Um, We're about five, six, I think six weeks in now to this particular um, series that we're doing over this fall where we're looking at different doctrines. We looked at uh, the doctrine of the word, the doctrine of the trinity, the Son, creation, etc. Things like that. Um, And today we're coming to one that as I was kind of thinking about it's probably very familiar. More than likely, uh, the doctrine of the atonement, we could say, is very much the reason why we're here. I mean, we come each week to celebrate what Christ has done for us on the cross and to want to respond and worship and thanksgiving and gratitude, etc. And so as we're looking at specifically the doctrine of the atonement this this morning, um, there's a good likelihood that there will be some information that you've heard before. It's, it's repeat information. And so what I wanted to do before we, we go in, hopefully there'll be some new things, but the majority of it will be things that you've heard. Not only things that you heard, um, but you've probably at some points felt very deeply and emotionally about it. Um, you, you've come to a realization of what christ has done for you on the cross and that affected you deeply and you've had those you know those thursday night camp moments where you're like wow i can't believe that he would do this etc um and so i thought the danger would be that if we come here without stopping and asking for the lord to do something new in our heart that maybe uh we would just kind of learn these things and we would keep going but but doctrine is not to be learned just as an in and of itself um We want to get knowledge because it's supposed to drive us deeper into a deeper love for Christ. So I'm going to pray. But before I pray, um, I'm going to invite us all to uh, in your heart and in your mind, pray that God would take some of these likely familiar things that we've heard and make them maybe become fresh, become new, um, re-amaze you, life-transforming uh, affection driving and, and and pulling out of you maybe what has been kind of deep down in and hasn't manifested its way to the surface when it comes to deep delight in Christ and these things. So uh, I, I want you to pray. We're going to have a moment uh, where you can pray in your heart and head that maybe even some of these things that you've heard before, yet even the very reason you're probably here today, but that you would ask God would do something new and fresh in your life with this as we talk about it. And then I'll I'll pray so... Um, Close your eyes and, and pray, and after a few moments, I'll start praying. Father, we come to you with the realization that it's really easy for us to get into a routine, a weekly routine of church, school, work, weekend, church, school, work, weekend, church, school, just trudging through the weeks and looking back and realizing that it's all just kind of been the same. But we can also get into a routine of the way we hear and respond to information. Hear it. Think it's pretty neat. Be amazed. Forget it in a few hours. Go through our work week of. School and work and weekend. Then come back and. Find ourselves in a routine. Of life and the way we respond to. You. And that won't. Change, God, unless something new breaks into the routine. Lord, we need for you to break in this morning. Holy Spirit, would you come now and break into what could be a routine for some that's gone on for years. And take some of these things that are likely familiar if they've spent any time, and I've spent any time in church And would you awaken affections that maybe have grown cold? Would you amaze us, astound us in new ways as we look at the doctrine of the atonement? God, would you help us have fresh applications that apply to this stage of life that we're in? God, I confess that I am in utter need of your spirit. Not just in these moments as I preach, but every day, my whole week. I don't want to live a life of just simple routine. But I want, Lord, for your gospel to be so life-changing that... I simply can't get over being a child of yours. Would you do something amazing in all of us this morning? We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at the doctrine of the atonement today. Um, and if you're not familiar with this word, atonement, Uh, To atone for something just means to make amends or reparations. And so someone has been wronged, someone has been offended. The party that has done the offense comes and tries to right the wrong. Um, And as we talked about last week, uh, when it comes to the offense or the wrongs that we've done to God, we simply cannot do that. And so there has to be amends, there has to be reparations, but we're incapable of that. And so the doctrine of the atonement teaches us that Jesus comes on behalf of us and does what's necessary. It's it's an amazing thing. God, Christ comes and does what's necessary to make amends unto God who is in the Trinity unto himself. And therefore, our relationship with God has been restored or reconciled because of God's work of sending his son, who is also God, to make our relationship right with God. Pretty astounding as you think about it. So to give you maybe a theological, a more biblical definition of the atonement, it'll be up here on the screen. Um, This is from a guy named Wayne Grudem. He says this, the atonement, this is the death of Jesus Christ, um, the life of Jesus Christ, when we talk about the atonement or the making right of things, the atonement is the work Christ did in his life and his death to earn our salvation. It's a divine payment, if, we, if you will. Um, more than likely, your entire life, if you've been in church at any particular long period of time, you've heard this and you're like, yeah, I agree with that. But there's probably, at least for me, as I was rereading some of this, a phrase that stuck out like, huh, That's not always the way I think about it. That's not always the way it's presented. So when we look at this, we hear the atonement is the work of Christ. He did in his life and his death. Usually when someone presents the gospel to you, they talk about the death of Jesus on the cross for you. And so we concentrate on the death part. But he also adds the life part. The atonement is the work of Christ is what he did in his life and his death. And so that's opening up and expanding this idea of atonement, that the atonement was not just secured or uh, happened for us in a moment on the cross. But yet it was actually the entire life of Christ coming to its final climax at his death. And that is the atonement. And so the death of Christ and his life, when when we talk about the atonement, is not just that that should have been our death, but also this perfect life that Jesus lived for 33 years is also given to us. And so the atonement is showing us that 33 years of perfection of Jesus's life is thereby um, transferred or given to you to your account. And he had to do that. It wasn't just that he born and that was born and went straight to the cross and died. But yet he lived a perfect life. And so that was the death that we should have, di- should have died. But also he takes this perfect life. And then the theological word is impute. Basically imputes it to us. Counts it to us now. And so we also have the perfect life of God given to us. And his death for us on our, on our behalf. And so when we talk about the atonement. We don't just talk about the death of Christ. But we also talk about this perfect life that he lived for us. So... Whenever I started uh, looking at the atonement this particular week, um, there are, I mean, just tons of ways that I could go um, and... Things that we could look at when it comes to the atonement, just to give you a couple ideas. When we're talking about the atonement, I could talk about the cause of the atonement. I could talk about the necessity of the atonement. I could talk about the aspects of the atonement, the nature of the atonement, um, the theories of the atonement, the extent of the atonement. There's I'm going to explain what some of those mean. There's there's lots of ways I could go um, when we talk about it, but. As I thought and prayed, I think that the way that we're going to go today is going to drive down into nature. But I do want to nature of the atonement. But I do want to explain some of these things in in a kind of prefatory manner before we get into the nature of the atonement. So first thing I want to talk about is the uh, the cause of the atonement. What would be the purpose? What was the, the the reason why it happened? The cause of the atonement, there's there's primarily. If you look in the Bible, two reasons why the atonement happened. One is the love of God, and the second is the justice of God. So, if you look in Romans chapter three, um, there's a there's a specific little text starting at verse 21 where uh, Paul, who's writing, explains to us uh, about the justice of God. What would make God want to put forward His Son? What's the cause of that? He tells us because one reason is because of the justice of God. So. Prior to this moment, so you can just think, 2,000 years ago, there's Paul writing this, and Jesus had just died on the cross, and so Paul's kind of looking at it from, I don't know, maybe year 60, looking back at all the Old Testament history, He, you know, Paul's not aware of all the 2000 years of history that would happen afterwards. And as he's writing, he's looking at the cross and he's saying, "Okay, Jesus just died 30 years ago. But prior to that, we've got, I don't know, two, three thousand at least that we know of of human history where man at the fall had been living and had been living and had been sinning willingly against the Lord. And all of a sudden, when you look at that, we, we also read in the Old Testament that man was getting to go to heaven, but no one had died yet. Sin had not been fully appeased for. It hadn't been destru- penalized or, you know, um, God hadn't poured out his anger and it, it, it hadn't yet happened. And so they're looking back at the Old Testament and we're saying, well, if these guys are dying and sinning and then dying and go to heaven, how is it they're going to heaven when an atonement of some sort hasn't happened yet? And so people could easily say, well, that's easy. God's just letting people into heaven. This holy God, he's not just anymore. He's just not just. He just lets people go to heaven or hell or whatever he wants. It's certainly not based on uh, the Messiah who died, you know, um, on the cross. And so Paul's looking at this particular instance and he's saying that's not what's happening. Um. This, this cross here is demonstrating for us the justice of God. And it, whenever he's looking back at all those sinners... And we're sinners too. But all those people who had lived in the Old Testament that had sinned... God was... He uses the phrase, divinely forbearing. In other words, God himself was being patient... And storing up wrath of all the ra- of all the sins of the Old Testament... And even all the future sins. So that includes 2013. And all the collection of all the sins that had happened... Past and present and future. Because he's God and he's outside of time. He decided to pour it all out on Jesus at the cross. And so he is just. He did deal with sin. He's not just not dealing with sin and letting people into heaven. So that's the argument that he's making here at verse 21, where he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. If you want to be counted righteous, you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then all who believe in Christ's death on the cross for them will be counted as righteous. And then he says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all know that one if you grew up in church at any at any point whatsoever. It was in Bible drill, back in fourth grade. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But then since we all know that all are sinners, and he said, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a here's a kind of a big theological word, propitiation. That just means um, God had righteous anger built up and he has to pour it out on someone. So he's going to who's going to bear this wrath? Jesus. So Jesus is the propitiation. He's the one who receives all the wrath of God. And it says, God put forward his son As a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show. Here it is. Here it is right here. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance. God had been patiently waiting. And saying I'm not going to count these sins against you. You can see it right here. In his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins he was letting them happen and he wasn't just taking every person that sinned, punishing them and sending them to hell instead he was actually showing them grace and letting those go to heaven who are trusting in the future savior and he was passing over those sins and eventually was going to pour it all out on christ and so he's showing he's doing that to show that he is just That he is not just acting like those sins didn't happen. He was waiting for his son to come. And then he was going to pour all the wrath out on his son. For the former sins and for us in the future. And he says it right here. He was doing this. um, His divine forbearance which he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just he is just without question and the justifier not only is he the one who pours out the wrath and demonstrates that he's just but he's also the one who gave a son and he saves people and he's also the one who justifies sinners who's the one who lets them become righteous so um might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus and so that's all demonstrated to us there as we look at the cause of the atonement one of the reasons is justice the other reason of the of the uh, atonement is love. And I just want to read uh, uh, an excerpt from a, a, a systematic book, if you will. It's, it's, it's a book, book called Doctrine by Mark Driscoll. He's talking about God's love specifically in regard to the atonement. And this is what he says. Um, this is this is really good because he, he takes out the way that we as humans feel about love mostly And then he actually says God's love is is generally different than ours. He says this at the cross. We see that the love of God is not merely sentimental, but also efficacious. This is just a big word. It means able to affect something, able to make something happen. Um, When people speak of love, they usually mean an emotional love that feels affectionate or feels loving, but not able, but may not do anything to help the beloved to help the person that they love. But he said, thankfully, God does not just merely feel loving toward us, though he does. And that's absolutely beautiful. God does not just merely feel loving toward us. His love actually compels him to act on our behalf so that we can be changed by his love. So the cause of the atonement is because God is just and because, I mean, and I'm going to say this over and over throughout the sermon. Christ loves you more than you could ever conceive. These are the two reasons For the cause of the atonement. The next thing i want to talk about is. The necessity of the atonement. Um, Some could ask. Is the atonement necessary? Was it necessary. For Christ to come. And live this perfect life. And die on the cross for us. Um, And the answer. Has to be a resounding no. It has to be a resounding no. It was not necessary. We know that that's the case. Because prior to man. When the angels fell. God decided not to atone for them and save them but he let a third of the angels and they're just are forever separated and he could have just done the same with us whenever we fell and left us to continue on our own sin and devices but he chose not to out of grace and mercy he sent his son so the necessity of the atonement shows us that it wasn't necessary for god to atone but he did it anyway i mean this just amplifies again his magnificent love that he has for us now when we start talking about the atonement and Christ dying, there's some, there's some aspects of it that I think we need to understand. Th- these things will be a little bit repeated as we get into, this is all intro, I know. As we get out of this, we'll get into the actual bulk of the sermon. Um, but there's some aspects of the atonement that I want to make sure we understand before we go into uh, the, the nature. So the first thing is this, that an aspect of the atonement has to do with sacrifice. This is When we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, he died for us as a sacrifice. Um, Christ as a sacrifice for us. Hebrews 9, 26 says, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since um, since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So when we talk about the nature of the or an aspect of the atonement, we need to realize that it entails sacrifice, that Jesus would come as our sacrifice. The next one is also propitiation, which we talked about already when we looked at Romans three, I think it was in verse 25, but it's also another place in first John. It says this in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be to be the propitiation for our sins. So when we talk about the atonement, we need to realize that we're talking about Christ as the wrath bearer, removing the wrath that was supposed to be on us. Christ is the one that's put forward for us as the wrath remover. So we're talking about him being our sacrifice. We're talking about him being the the propitiation. But the next one is also uh, when we talk about the atonement, we need to realize that there's reconciliation that's happening. Um, I'm going to kind of make up a phrase, but that's okay. Uh, I make up words a lot. So we have us and we have God and what happens is, because of sin, we're separated. And in Christ is the, the bringer back, if you will, of fellowship to God. He's the reconciler. It says this in, in 2 Corinthians 5. It says... He's kind of picking up in the middle of the the idea because all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then as he did that, he gave us who are in Christ the ministry of reconciliation that we get to go out and proclaim this gospel and try to help people come back to Christ. That is, Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So in... another aspect of the atonement is that there's now a reconciliation that's happened. And lastly is this. um, Another aspect is redemption. So we talk about Christ as our sacrifice. Christ as the propitiation. We also talk about reconciliation that happens. And lastly, we talk about um, redemption, which is the price that's been paid. Christ paid the ransom in his death. Mark 10, 45 says, for even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there was a price that had to be paid and it was Christ's death on the cross. Now, what we're not going to talk about is the theories of the atonement and extent of the atonement. What we mean is some people look at the atonement and we say, well, what was the reason for him dying? When we look at the atonement, what is it that different people believe we evangelicals i would say specifically here at remedy um, we would say that the theory of the atonement that we ascribe to is penal substitutionary atonement in that a penalty had to be paid and christ was the one who paid the penalty for us the substitution was that should have been us on the cross but jesus came and took my place jesus in my place so the atonement is penal substitutionary we were criminals And we were supposed to be penalized with the crime, but instead Christ came and he took our place for us. Other other theories would be like it wasn't that he died for people, but he just set the example. He came and obeyed the father and set the example. So the cross is just demonstrating how we're supposed to be examples like Jesus that could be true, but that's not the reason of the atonement. There's other ones we could get into. The other one would be the extent of the atonement, which we're certainly not going to dive into today, but that's just basically when Jesus died, who did he die for? Did he die for everyone? Did he die just for the elect? Who did he die for? That, that will get everybody confused and make everybody want to get mad, so we're not going to dive into that one. Go read and figure that out yourself this week. Um, but I'm not getting into that one today. Um, but what I do want to talk about is the nature of the atonement, the nature of the atonement. And as I said, uh, as we look at the nature atonement, we, we have to think about Christ's perfect 33 years that he lived. And then we also talk about Christ's death on the cross. And so we're going to today dive into this the second part of Christ's death on the cross. We're going to look at the nature of Christ dying on the cross for us. And try to figure out what are some uh, facets about that particular death of Christ on the cross for us. And you can see here, I've got the nature of the atonement. Four facets. Um, I've actually changed the title. It's going to come up here in a minute. It's it's like a. If you ever read any old theologians like Jonathan Edwards, they didn't title their books like really short. They would just title it like the first couple sentences, and that's kind of what this title's like. It says this: the four facets of the nature of the atonement of Jesus on the cross for man. Ridiculous, I know. It's just ridiculous, but I had to get really precise what we're talking about. So there's there's four things that we're going to look at when it comes to the nature of the atonement. Things that we can learn, but not just. In general, but we want to talk about Jesus's death on the cross for man. So what are some four things that we need to learn about whenever Christ was doing his atoning work on the cross? What are some important things we need to know about what was going on there at the cross? So the first one is this. You can see it up there. Physical pain and death. One of the first facets or aspects, if you will, of the nature of the atonement of Jesus on the cross was um, he dealt with and had physical pain. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just that physical pain killed him. There were were other things and we're going to look at those other three. But the first one that we need to realize is that there was a physical nature of the pain and death of Jesus. And so um, I think one of the main reasons why whenever you, you know, I know you've all seen probably the uh, the movie, um, what's it called? The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. Um, I, I heard people actually say and I found this kind of amazing. Whenever I was in seminary, someone said, now that uh, now that I've seen that movie, I really, really can understand what Jesus did for me. And I was like, whoa, hey, we have the Bible. You know, God's word. Uh, we certainly weren't like, Waiting on Mel Gibson to make the movie so we can finally understand Jesus's death on the cross. Um, As a matter of fact, I would submit to you that if the gospel writers didn't make as much a big deal about the violent nature of Jesus's death as Mel Gibson, we should probably ask ourselves that question. Why? That it wasn't that big a deal to the gospel writers. There was more to the story than just the physical pain about the cross that they were trying to highlight for us. And so we should ask ourselves, is the physical pain the big deal? Probably not, but it is part of the the aspect. And the reason why I think his death was so bloody and so gruesome and so um, on the outside for us to be able to visually see and describe some in the Bible for us is so that not that when we look at it, we'd just be like, oh, it's so gross. My stomach's sick. But instead that when we think about this, this violent, violent death by which he died, we would realize when I look at that, I'm just repulsed. And that's how sin is the violent, gruesome nature of death of Jesus is to remind us the grossness, vileness, repulsion that we should feel towards sin. And so the first thing that we can see regarding this nature of the atonement is that Jesus died, had physical pain and physical death. You can see that there are a lot of verses here. Whenever the writers were trying to, you know, 50, 100 years or so after Jesus died, they're trying to describe in some of their writings this violent nature that Jesus died. They couldn't come up with enough words to actually describe just how gruesome it was and so they made up a word that literally means out of the cross and so when we talk about something that's just terribly painful they wrote up they made up this word out that's out of the cross and it's excruciating so when you hear the word excruciating it's literally just means out of the cross. And it's because the writers afterwards were trying to figure out how to describe this violent nature which by which Jesus suffered. And they came up with the word excruciating. And just to give us a little bit of highlight about how Jesus took our place when we talk about this part of the atonement, receiving all the physical pain that should have been given to us on our behalf. They, in Matthew 26, spit in his face. They hit him and they slapped him. John 19, these are all up here. They flogged him. Um, just the references are Uh, they also scourged him this is someone a tormentor that takes a whip and whips him 39 times Uh, they also twisted together a crown of thorns with two inch kind of spikes and shoved it down into his head they struck him with a reed they just beat him with this big stick Um, and then they spit on him again they blindfolded him and started punching him in the face and ridiculing him and saying say who prophesied you if you're if you're a prophet and hitting him and tormenting and beating him again and then after all that They nailed him to a cross. I mean, that's a lot of stuff before he even gets to the cross. We can see why he wasn't even able to carry it to Golgotha, the hill that he was crucified. Then they made him carry it. And then they put him up on the cross and and hammered him on there. And he had to lift himself up and try to breathe. And eventually, everybody who um, dies on a cross more than likely will die out of asphyxiation where they... um, literally are choking on their own blood in their lungs and they die. But we know that Christ also lived only six hours, not days where most people would. But we're going to get to that in a second. So when we talk about the atonement, the first thing that we want to realize is that there was certainly a physical pain and death that Jesus felt. The next part of the the, uh, atonement, which when we think about that, we realize, wow, that's amazing, like Christ clearly loves me if he would do that for me the next part is this is the pain of bearing sin the pain of bearing sin the psychological pain that christ dealt with in bearing the guilt of sin we we need to realize that um, in our experience we have felt this sometimes because we are sinners so there's been times as you're going through life where christ in his mercy has kind of peeled back the clouds for you and given you a greater vision of the holiness of God and how your sin relates with that. And you look at your sin and you're repulsed by it. You're like, oh, it's wicked, it's evil, it's vile, it's so awful. And so we've all kind of felt that, if you're in Christ, felt that experience of, wow, sin is so awful compared to the holiness of God. But up until this moment, Christ had never experienced the revulsion of sin personally in his own life. Because he had lived a perfect life. And in this particular moment, not only did he deal with the physical pain, but now as a human, because we've already talked about he was completely human, he starts dealing with the psychological pain of bearing guilt for sin. He's never felt guilt for sin before. And now it is. This would be a terrible experience in the life of Jesus because he had been perfect up in that time. And now he's actually feeling psychologically in some ways the vile vulgarity of sin in his life. Not that he had done it, but that our sin was being put it on, putting on him um, all his life, his entire life, because he's the God man, he had instinctively rebelled against sin. He had always gone against it and had lived a perfect life. And in, now in this moment, um, he is willingly obeying his father and feeling what it feels like to have the guilt of sin laid on him. And we can just imagine that it was deep, deep revulsion Just deep revulsion to it. It's not an easy thing at all to say that Jesus went to the cross to die for sinners. He felt things that he had never felt before. Nor should he, because he was completely innocent. And so we hear verses like Isaiah 53, 6. It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So now when we hear that um, at, at Easter, when we hear about the Lord laying on him the iniquity of us all... We can realize that there's a whole lot more going on there. He had never felt that before. Ever. Or Isaiah 53, 12. He bore the sins of many. Or Second Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, who is Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had to experience the vulgarity of sin. And what it would feel like. So that we could have our sins then removed john piper talks about this um, when he's talking about the atonement this is what he says it's not that he jesus comes and just kind of balances out things he actually has to remove this sin from us it says this john piper says there is no salvation by balancing records there is only salvation by canceling records the record of our bad deeds including our defective good deeds along with the just penalties that each deserves, must be blotted out, not balanced. This is what Christ suffered and died to accomplish. So it wasn't that we were just bad and it needed to be, the scales needed to be balanced. Instead, it was all the sin that we had accumulated had to be completely blotted out and then removed and put on Christ for us. And in those moments, he was feeling this. And the amazing thing is, this was not some surprise for him. This was not like... Something that took him by by shock. He knew that this was going to happen. And yet he willingly still, out of obedience to the Father, goes to the cross. Just demonstrating again, without question, the deep love that he has for his children. You know, if you're like me, day by day, you go through life, you can at some moment start questioning. I wonder if Christ truly loves me. I mean, I know that he loves fill in the blank, because they do so much for him. But me? Does he really love me? And the cross is just screaming out, absolutely. Look what he's willing to go through in order to redeem his children and reconcile them back to God. The next one is this. So at first we felt the, and seen the physical pain that Jesus felt. The next one that we've seen is now for the very first time, the psychological, emotional that he dealt with in regard to finally feeling what the guilt of sin felt like. Now, this next one, I think, is maybe even more, um, more terrible. That for the very first time now, this perfect relationship that he's always felt with the father has now changed. So the third one is this, the, the forsakening of the father. The forsakening of the father Where Jesus, in some measure and in some way, and we can't say it for sure, um, how there was in some way for this particular moment on the cross, a feeling of abandonment by the father where Jesus for you and for me was forsaken by the father. So the physical pain happened, the taking on of the evil uh, feelings of the guilt of sin would happen. And all this was now enhanced very tremendously, but because Jesus had to face this now alone alone. His disciples left. Peter had forsaken him. Jews had betrayed him. Everybody had gone. He's going in there. And at this moment, his father, whom he had always had perfect relationship with from eternity past all the way up. The the relationship with his father had always, until this moment, been the unfailing source of strength and joy. Now, in this moment, he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the atonement also demonstrates to us that there was a forsakening of the father where Jesus is now going to go and be experiencing this atonement completely alone on the cross. He felt real abandonment as he was forsaken by the Holy Holy Father, the heavenly father. Now, we can't get into how long that lasted and all that kind of stuff. But we know in that moment he does say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels Alone by himself as he's, as he's always been able to draw on this perfect relationship with the father. Always been able to grab on that as an unfailing source of joy and strength. Where that relationship has changed now because he willingly wants to bring back his children into a right relationship with the father. I mean, if there's ever, ever question in my mind. If Christ loves me, this has got to be the tip top thing that my mind has to go to remind myself that it's the case. That He would willingly let this relationship, though for a moment, not forever, be in some measure uh, broken in order to save us. If there's ever a time where I can ask myself, does Christ really love me? That He would do this is ample proof that it's the case. We never have to ask ourselves, why whether or not he loves us as he faces the, the the sins of millions to be put on him he goes at it completely by himself now the last one is this the first one was the physical pain the second one was the psychological dealing the third one was the removal of the perfect relationship with the father even though it was in some senses uh, not permanent but there's also now the father is going to put something back he removes the perfect uh, Unfailing source of joy. But now the father is actually going to put something back that is, I would say, the complete opposite of what he's ever felt before. So now the father is going to put on him. We've talked about Jesus being the propitiation, the wrath bearer. God, the father, is going to now put on him all the wrath that had been built up for all the sin forever. Just think about how much sin we're talking about here. All the sin that had ever happened from eternity past to future of all those who are his had built up tons of sin. And God had built up righteously anger towards that sin. he's going to take all of that and then put it right on to his son. So this is the fourth aspect of the atonement is that he bore the wrath of sin from the father. God, the father, is now going to pour out on Jesus the full fury of his wrath on the on the cross. Jesus became. The object of intense hatred of sin. And the punishment of sin. Which God the Father had been patiently storing up from the beginning of the world. And then he pours it out on Jesus. As Romans 3.25 says. Jesus was the propitiation. This simply means that it was the sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. And in doing so so, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Into favor. Favor. Because Christ was willing to do that. All you know now as a child of God is favor and not anger when it comes to your heavenly father. Because Christ put himself forward as the propitiation for us. The wrath bearer and remover off of us. Now we have to understand that Christ, I mean God the father was very angry about sin, righteously. And it had to go somewhere. It wasn't that God could just take this wrath and just kind of throw it out the window and say, ah, I don't have to do anything with it. He had to do something with it in order to be just. And he puts it all on his son. Wayne Grudem, as he's talk, talking about this in his systematic theology, uh, systematic theology book, says this. To bear the guilt of millions of sin, even for a moment, when he's talking about humans, even for a moment, would cause the greatest Anguish of soul and profound fear. I mean, we can't experience this, and I don't know that we'll ever understand it, but if we were to put ourselves, humanly speaking, into this bearing the millions of sins on us, it would cause us, the fear would be life altering. It would change us forever. It would cause, as he says, the greatest anguish of soul and profound fear if it was just for a moment. And then he says, but Jesus. Jesus' suffering wasn't just a minute or two. It was more wrath and more weight of sin poured on him in wave after wave for hours on the cross. The dark weight of sin and the deep wrath of the Father went on in waves until at last, six hours, Jesus cried out, It is finished. And as he cried out, it is finished, he knew that all the wrath had finally been poured out on him and he had absorbed all of it. And then Jesus willingly died. So when we say um, most people die on the cross After periods of days because of the physical pain. In this case. The reason why I think Jesus only lived six hours. Is because he had fully absorbed all the wrath of the God. It wasn't the physical pain that killed him. That made him die. It was after he absorbed it all. Jesus willingly gave up his spirit. And just willingly died then. Because it had all been done. And then he was dead. For two days in the grave. Three days in the grave. So he willingly gave up his life here. When he said father. It is finished. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now, at this particular point, he had taken on the full fury of the wrath of God. Full payment had been made and he chose to die in that moment because everything had been paid for. So in the atonement, we see that not only was the right relationship with God removed, but also all the wrath was put on Jesus and he absorbed it all and then declared out that it is finished. And he poured out his soul unto death as he bore the sins of many, as Isaiah 53 says. uh, I've already read this before, but I want to read it one more time as we go into our conclusion from 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it gives us a better understanding now as we've thought on the atonement. And specifically in that death on the cross piece, when we talk about the atonement, where it says this. For our sake, he made him, God made him to be the incarnate son, to be sin. Who knew no sin. He never sinned. But he made him. To become sin for us. That he would pour it out of him. So that. In Christ. We might become. The righteousness. Of God. Through faith. In Christ. And his work on the cross for us. His death on the cross for us. When we trust that. That was our place. Jesus in my place. Now we are declared. Righteousness of God. And all you'll ever receive then. Is favor. All you'll ever receive then is favor. I want to conclude by reading a, uh, a hymn to you. Ben and I were talking earlier this morning. He said, I was looking at the, at the song sheets of all that we're going to sing today. And every single one of them are old hymns. I didn't even realize it. After he had made out the list, he realized that they're all hymns. And he said, I guess it's because, and I think he's right. Um, As you start looking for songs that deal with the atonement, contemporary songs don't. The best ones are the old thinkers who used to be far more smarter maybe than our contemporary music guys. That's, that's very subjective. I'm just, ignore that. Um, where they would <laughs> write on the atonement in such deep and profound manners that when they look back at that, I'm thinking they're looking back and they say, I'm not gonna improve on that. Look at that, that's amazing. And so what I wanna do is close with a song that we're gonna actually sing about the atonement, which I think just um, encapsulates for us The profound depth of the atonement. Um, Before I read it, I want to tell you about the guy that wrote it. His name was Philip Bliss. He lived um, in the 1800s. He was born into humble beginnings. He was born in 1838. He lived in a log cabin in Pennsylvania. He was uneducated for the first 10 years of his life. And the only Bible, the only book he had was his Bible growing up. Um, But he was somewhat gifted at music. And at age 11, he left to go make a living for himself. At age 11, he left to go be a logger. That's a stud right there. That's a stud. I mean, I was still mooching off mom and dad for a while. Um, at age 11, he left to go be a logger. And then he spent the next five years in lumber camps and sawmills. And he was a believer at this particular time, walking through Jesus, walking with Jesus in this really rough environment and between these jobs. He would attend school and begin to study music, etc. cetera. Um, and he was also invited inv- actively involved in some Methodist revival services that were going on at the time. This is more than likely going on during the Second Great Awakening. And at the age of 17, um, he took the final steps to attain his credentials, and he became a schoolmaster at Hartsville, New York. With the encouragement of his friends and mentors, he became a music teacher in Rome, Pennsylvania. And after a few years later, he was married to the love of his life, Lucy, of which he would actually give his life for. There was a fire of which she was in, and he ran in to save her, and they both died in the fire. Um, he would give his life for this, this lady he loved very deeply. Um, at age uh, 26, he moved to Chicago and he became a pretty wide-known teacher and singer and composer. And for the next eight years, he was known well. He had started a financial successful business. He was at the top of his game. And he met an evangelist named D.L. Moody. Maybe you've heard of him. But Moody eventually said, hey, I want you to come join us in our revival meetings. They were very, very, very prevalent in the early 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s was the revivalistic movement where evangelists would just travel all around. They wouldn't necessarily pastor a certain church. Some would, but more than likely they would just travel around guys like Whitfield and they would just preach in the open air and scores of people would get saved. I mean, just amazing amounts of people would get saved. And as I've been reading those histories over the last, I don't know, a while, I keep praying, Lord, make that happen again. Wouldn't it be awesome if we start seeing that? Anyway, so Moody invites him to come along. And as he starts traveling along for the next couple of years, he sees lives transformed everywhere. And he pens a song called Man of Sorrows about the atonement. He went to, in 1876, a Michigan prison where there were about 800 prisoners. And unbeknownst to bliss... This would be the final time that he would ever sing. He died in the fire right after this. And in that service that he had in this prison, he sang one of his very last hymns that he ever wrote called Man of Sorrows. And he sang this as an expression of Christ's humility and sacrifice into the atonement. And many of the prisoners of this time openly wept as they heard the song for the very first time. And they gave their lives to Jesus. Jesus. And no one would have known that this would be his last public performance. But this song, because it's not scripture, but because it's so entrenched in the deep truths of the atonement, as it was saying to people, they gave their lives to Jesus because of the truth of it. And I want to read it to you and then we'll sing it together um, in response. Man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came. We don't don't think of Christ as sorrowful, man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners like you and I to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon. With his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, helpless, we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. It's my favorite line. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransom home to bring, then anew his song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And my prayer is as we sing these words, that they wouldn't be rote. They wouldn't be habit. They wouldn't be routine. But afresh and anew, the affections that Christ has given us for Him wouldn't just terminate on knowledge, but would push through knowledge, that we would know Christ more deeply. Oh, to know Him, that as we sing these words, our affections would be singing out to Him bright. Lord, I love these truths. Make them true in my heart. And so that I don't just feel the affections in here. But yet I go and I live a life of worship for you. Realizing that the atonement is more than just knowledge. But because you gave your son willingly, full atonement has been given to me. Hallelujah, what a savior. And we want to live a life that reflects that. So let's sing together this song. You all stand and I'll close this in prayer. And we'll be led to sing this song as a response to what he's done for us on the cross. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious doctrine of the atonement that teaches us what you have done for us. Full atonement has been made for us. And now, Lord, as we sing sing and worship you through song, Would you come now and move our hearts that we just don't think on these things and that's it, but we think on them deeply and we're moved by them. And we sing out to you in all of our hearts in worship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.